Hello? Is this the cocksucker residence? God damn you, stop calling here. Isn't this 4215 pussy way? You bitch! Now let me check the zip code. 212, fuck you! The police are tracing this call this very minute. Well, Dottie Hinkle, then why aren't they here, huh? Fuck face, fuck you! Fuck me gently with a chainsaw. When a movie is so bad, it's good. Thanks, I bought it at Versace. With quotes that launched a thousand memes. I can't feel next to Canada. This isn't Jamaica. Maybe it's so bad, it's gay. And when a tired little Latin boy puts on a dress, it's simply a boy in a dress. What is the name of the actor that plays the son in this? He's also in Scream. Matthew the, Lillard. Yes, who's essentially the same character. Yes. He's, an, he's not a very good actor, and no, he's, he's got a lot of annoying tics. But funnily enough, a week ago, I watched Scream, The Inside Story. The one that kind of sets it up as this really, really dramatic filming. And things always Yes, it's got all. lots of ridiculous voiceover yeah. stuff. But it's I quite liked Matthew Lillard in it, because... He said, oh my God, I was overacting so hard. I was really terrible. I'm amazed I even made it. And I was like, as long as you know that, I have more respect for you now because I find his scenes almost unwatchable in pretty much everything. I, he's always the same character. Yeah. Like, literally always the same character from like Hackers, Serial Mom to Scream. It's that goofy, over-the-top, badly-acted dick. Yeah, apart from when he was Shaggy in Scooby-Doo. Which is and then it was just being shaggy and Scooby Doo. When was the the first time you saw Serial Mom, or how were you introduced to? It? Um, I saw Serial Mom at the at the movies, and I dragged my flatmates who did not have a gay sensibility and who had never watched a John Waters movie in their life. It was my first John Waters film, but I was ten. So, what, what was that? Um, I was miming Fuck You. <laughs> so, when did it come out? It was 94, 95? Yeah, filmed in 93, came out in 94. Right. By that point, I was already a, I would say, a big John Waters fan. I'd seen Hairspray. I'd seen, re-seen, bought, re-watched, and adored Crybaby. I'd also seen some of Pink Flamingos and I'd watched Polyester. I just devoured it because even at 14 I had a well-developed sense of stuff that was so bad it was good and stuff that was deliberately bad. He didn't set out to make bad movies. He knew what bad looked like and he wanted to approximate bad. See, I was going to ask that because with most of his films, I don't actually know where to categorise them. Is it so bad it's good or is it an intentional satire of bad storytelling. I think it's a it's a kind of filmmaking that very few people get. And if I give you a contemporary analogy, the Sharknado movies, they set out to be bad because they think that the worse they are, the more people will talk about them on social media. And the problem is, you can't be deliberately bad. The example I always use is Les Dawson, when he used to play the piano, and it was hilarious because he was a terrible piano player, but he had to be an exceptional piano player to know how to be deliberately bad and make it funny. And that's what John Waters is like. John Waters' films are hilarious because he knows what bad is and he knows how to invent bad 
so that people can enjoy it. Whereas if you look at a movie like Sharknado, it's just shit and it's not really entertaining. You can only watch a Sharknado movie once. I think I've actually watched Sharknado twice. <laughs> Thank you for disproving my point. That's fine, I'll edit that bit out. <laughs> um, so I think I got into Serial Moms. My, again, my mother. Um, she sounds amazing, by the way. Being the legend that she is. I saw the, the trailer came on Channel 4 sometime in the 90s. And I'll play the trailer in a second, but the trailer sets the film up as like a whodunit, and that's it's a little bit serious. And then when mm-hmm. you actually watch the film, and you realise that it's a black comedy, and, and yeah, it just fell in love with it. And it was my first John Waters film. Mm-hmm. And then years later, having now seen most of his other films, and kind of looking at them a little bit more critically, I kind of love Serial Mom even more, because it was point within his career where he was going back, where he was like, he had made all of the nasty, disgusting films in the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. got a little bit serious, got a little bit more professional air mm-hmm. quotes. Serial Mom was his ode to his, his beginnings. Life doesn't have to be ugly. Look at the birds out there. Listen to their call. Wee, wee. This is the story of Beverly Sutphin. Scrambled eggs, anybody? A devoted mother. I'm so happy I could chip. You know how I hate the brown word. A loving wife. You think the kids are awake? We could be very quiet. I'm ready! Honey, you're hot tonight. And a suspected murderer. Oh, kids, are you doing your homework? How did America's number one mom turn into one of America's most wanted? Is she really guilty? Are you a serial killer? Chip, the only serial I know anything about is Rice Krispies. Is she the only one with a motive? Believe that damn litter bugger. Give her a happy face. Or is there someone else? I'm stood up. I'll kill that jerk. With an axe to grind. You'll never get a boyfriend. Meanwhile, this small Baltimore suburb keeps getting smaller and smaller. It's been a crazy day, hasn't it? Savoy Pictures asks the burning question, Is your wife mental? Is Beverly Sutphin just a sweet suburban housewife? Well, I don't know what it is about today, but I feel great. Cookie? Or is she... Serial Mom? Cool. Is she in a band? Kathleen Turner. Sam Waterston and Ricky Lake. Serial Mom. Every woman wants to be wanted. Just not for Murder One. Beverly, I've read all about this. Is it menopause? Bad of the ball. Bad of the ball. We have a list of all of the things that I love about this film. Go on. First is just Beverly's character and how she feels completely justified mm-hmm. in the reasons that she has for killing people. Mm-hmm. She's almost like the original Dexter Morgan in that she has a code. Yeah. And if they break the code, they die. She's yeah. She's just not as meticulous with it. But also I love her obsession with the minutiae. So like when the police are... When the police start applying pressure because they're convinced that she's a suspect and she says, I think Chip says his friend Scotty, he's played by Justin Wallen. Is it Justin Wallen? He he says, oh, Scotty thinks you're the serial killer. And her response is, well, for someone who doesn't wear his seatbelt, he certainly knows a lot about serial killers. (laughs) I love that ability to 
reduce something to something so trivial whilst dismissing something so grand. And I think, again, when you listen to John Waters talking about the movie, he's based so much of Beverly Sutphin on his mum. She has a, um, a, a reductionist viewpoint of the world where the really important things don't matter, but the tiny little things do. So the reason she beats Patricia Hurst to death at the end is because she's wearing white shoes after Labor Day. Yeah. And, you know, she wants to kill someone because they chewed gum and... She hates oh. someone who doesn't recycle. It's yeah. all of those tiny little infractions. Can we actually go through all of the kills? Go on, then. And go motive and weapon. Okay. So it starts with the teacher. The teacher. And motive is he criticises her parenting. Yes. And then she also sees him chewing gum, and that was the, the straw that broke his back. I think the next to go... I think oh it's the it's Misty's boyfriend at the swap meet with who gets the fire poker through his liver and then she has to dislodge the liver. Yeah, and then she gets on a shoe. Yeah. And then there's the Then it's the parents of No, then it then it's the dentist patient. Yes. Well, it's his wife first, she gets stabbed with the scissors. Yeah. Um And it's because they were eating chicken. They were eating chicken which she associates with um the little birds that she feeds. Because she does the bird call, <laughs> but also the, there's a great moment where she's spying on them through the window and they're eating the chicken, and it reminds me so much of the scene in Gremlins where the Mogwai all eat after midnight for the first yeah. time, and they're all eating um, chicken drumsticks, and it's gross and it's slimy, and you see close-ups on their teeth and as they're licking their fingers, and in a film full of shots from Herschel Gordon Lewis's Blood Feast that. You know, two middle-aged people eating chicken prior to a night of sex is about the most gross thing that you see in the whole movie. Then she kills the woman who doesn't rewind her videotapes with the leg of lamb. Uh, that's actually one of my favourite scenes in the entire film. It's one of mine because I, I, I'm i not ashamed to admit I love Annie the musical so much. Oh, I thought you were going to say it's because you've got a foot fetish. No, 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 but I do also love lamb. It No, the foot bit is pretty gross. It's interesting... John Waters denies being inspired by Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but it does ring back to... There was a a famous episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents that was based on a short story by Roald Dahl about a woman who murders her husband. It was called Lamb to the Slaughter. And uh, a woman murders her husband with a frozen leg of lamb. And then she phones the police. And in the time it takes for the police to come, I guess it must be a slow response, she's able to cook the leg of lamb. And when the police arrive, she says, I found my husband, he'd been beaten to death. And she serves them a roast lamb dinner. And of course, they're eating the murder weapon. So no one's ever able to find the weapon. There's not many more killings. No, then there's um, the friend Scotty who um, is self-fired. Yeah, because there's also that moment where uh, the Camel Lips lead singer takes a swig of alcohol and spits it onto him as he's burning alive, which is pretty. One of the things I love about the supporting characters in Serial Mom is that they're all just a little bit off. Mm-hmm. So you've got oh, what's the what's the guy's name from the stall? Oh, do you, do you mean the weird old pervert? The pervert that was at the glory hall. Yes. But it's like even that, it's a mainstream Hollywood movie with a glory hole in it from the mid nineties. Him. But I but I love how she, I love how she puts him off when he's on the window stand, opening her legs. Yeah. And 
Kathleen Turner's basic instinct moment. She was amazing in that. Um, yeah, everyone is a little bit off. So you've got that angry lady from the video store who is clearly into bestiality and has taught her dog to lick her feet. Lick her feet. Yeah. You have the guy at the glory hall who just would do that thing to get his rocks off. Mm-hmm. The cop who is a closet case tranny chaser. Oh yes, that's right. Who reads chicks with dicks? Yeah. Well, they're they're all so well. For instance, Dottie Hinkle. Who's played by Mink Stoll, who's one of John Waters' oldest yeah, she's in every collaborators. Film. And she's amazing in this film. And I love the fact that you get to see Mink Stoll and um, Kathleen Turner going head to head. But I love the fact that her whole story with the obscene phone calls, like when she's asking the police for help, and she says, please help me, I'm a divorced woman. <laughs> I love that she yeah, couldn't bring herself to say I can't say feet. the word. Yeah, well, she can't say the word... Um, and then she says, please, you can say it. And she says, cocksucker. And she goes, listen to your filthy mouth, you fucking whore. <laughs> That's really good. But then I also love the scene where she, again, she says she can't say it. And they go, they bring in a police woman to sit next. She goes, it's okay. And then she says, she goes, oh. And then when, she, when she's on the, the witness stand at the end on yeah. trial, and she just explodes out yeah. of it. Actually, the trial is another one of my favourite parts of this film because... From the moment that she sacks her, her solicitor or her attorney and she takes over as her own defense. defense, it's just genius. It's like everyone in the film is getting their comeuppance for going against her. And what you realise was he foreshadowed very cleverly all of the witnesses who'd be called to testify yeah. and he set up how she was going to take them all down. Really, It was a really well-constructed plot. It is, and he has been criticised by almost every mainstream critic that he's a terrible storyteller. And you can kind of see it in some of his earlier work, but he had budgetary confinements and mm-hmm. resource confinements then. But give him a budget and give him a Time. Team. He talks about time as well is really important to him. The budget is less about being able to buy stuff, and it's more the time to experiment and play around with things and see what's working. And that's where he spends a lot of his money. I assume that you've seen I Am Divine. I haven't. It's on my iTunes wish list. And I really want to because I love Divine. Divine is incredible, but I think having... I guess you can kind of say that Kathleen Turner has taken over from Divine in this film, being that kind of well, you can lead. You can, but I was so when I was reading it, there was someone else that, that he had in mind for Kathleen... For, for Divine. Obviously, he wrote Serial Mom long after Divine had passed away. But it wasn't Kathleen Turner's role that he he said would have been the Divine role. It was someone else, and I can't remember who it is. I think... I think... It's um, it's the neighbour who doesn't recycle and is obsessed with the Fabergé eggs. Yes. She's the one who would have been the divine character. It would have been a, a secondary role rather than the lead. So was it from Hairspray that Divine started taking the secondary roles in his films? No, because well, Divine was um, Edna Turnblad, and that was her last role. I mean, she died right before the film premiere. That was her big starring breakout role, and, and it's so sad that if Divine hadn't died in 1988, then because Hesper was the movie that put John Waters on the mainstream map, and it would have been really interesting to see how Divine's career would have gone. So I think just before Divine died, he had been cast as a season regular on Married with Children. Oh, really? And that was the next project that he was going to go on to. And that's really sad. So yeah, he had also 
Ended it's about to break through, yeah. Well, I mean, he'd had a pop career in the 80s um, by working with Stock Aiken and Waterman. That's not something you would automatically put together. Well, but you never know. I also, one of the other things that I liked, I'm just having the opportunity to re-watch this film. I realised how many great bits of dialogue there are, and I love the the tentative nature that everyone has when they're dealing with bad bad language and swearing. So you've got Dottie Hinkle and her inability to say words to the police and there's the bit where the police confront Beverly in the first scene um, with the the letter that's been sent to Dottie Hinkle and they just say to her warn you this letter contains language yes and the word is pussy yes is it when they're having dinner and Chip says shit and she says I don't like the brown word (laughs) (laughs) I, I love that that's the sort of thing I'd love to work into my everyday conversation dialogue from the prank call scene Oh, it's my favourite. It's incredible, and it's one of those things that has contributed to the acts of drag queens the world over. Um, Pandora Box does an amazing spoken word lip sync. Oh, really? She cuts the that prank call scene in with um, Adele's Hello. Oh, really? Uh, it's incredible. Oh, that would be good. So here it is, the infamous prank call scene. Hello? Is this the cocksucker residence? God damn you, stop calling here. Isn't this 4215 pussy way? You bitch! Now let me check the zip code. 212, fuck you! The police are tracing this call this very minute. Well, Dottie Hinkle, then why aren't they here, huh? Fuck face, fuck you! <laughs> Didn't I just say fuck you? I beg your pardon. Who is this? Mrs. Wilson from the telephone company. I understand you're having problems with an obscene phone caller. Yes, I am. I'm sorry, Mrs. Wilson, but this is driving me crazy. I've had my number changed twice already. I'm a divorced woman. Please help me. What exactly does this sick individual say to you? I can't say the words out loud. I don't use bad language. Oh, well, I know it's difficult, but we need to know the exact words. I'll try. Cocksucker, that's what she calls me. Listen to your filthy mouth, you fucking whore! God damn you! Motherfucker! Cocksucker! Amazing. That is an absolutely genius scene. Mm -hmm. I love how much Kathleen Turner commits to that role. I love how Kathleen Turner aged like a normal human being. Yes. And she didn't do the Hollywood thing of fillers and Botox and trying to remain young. Mm. Like age took over and she just went, yeah, Yeah. I'm getting older, deal with it. And she, she sort of put on weight and said, okay, this is the shape that my body is as I'm in my 40s or 50s sort of concentrated on being who she was rather than, I, I agree with you, rather than sort of becoming some horrendous cadaver who was trying to hold on to youthfulness because I, I think this is one of the best performances she's done and there are so many laughs that you get in this movie that John Waters didn't write into the script that are entirely down to her performance. Like, I think my biggest laugh in the whole movie the first time I saw it was when she stalks out of the bedroom and her face just goes to thunder in an instant. She's smiling, she closes the door, it goes to absolute thunder and she storms down the hallway, bursts into Chip's room, bends right over him and yells in his face and absolutely terrifies him. But she pops back up instantly because 
that degree of shock, someone would sit straight up and they would have headbutted her in the face. So actually, her physical timing is perfect to land the joke and be upright again, to land the joke a second time where she's standing and she's the pristine housewife. She's really amazing in it. Why do you think, I mean, if you take away the fact that it's a John Waters film, why do you think it's resonated with gay people and it's kind of become one of those midnight films? Because, I mean, superficially, there's things like, there's lots of gay things in it, like, I think his name's something Pickles in the Glory Hole. Yeah. There's references to a village people record. Uh, and there's to, Chicks with Dicks and there's Pee Wee Herman. And I think I think it's because John Waters is an expert in infusing a film with a gay sensibility without it being a gay film. Yeah. So everything he does comes from a sort of gay outsider perspective, but he doesn't feel the need to make films about gay people. Years ago, I read a book about the gay experience, and one of the things it talked about in there was what is camp and what does camp mean? And what I was saying earlier about John Waters and his aesthetic and his sense of humour goes directly to that. So in this book I was reading, there was a quote from Susan Sontag and she was asked to define camp and it's the best definition I've ever heard and I use it all the time when people ask me because a lot of people use camp as a euphemism for gay and vice versa. They'll say someone's very camp and they mean he's gay. And actually, they're two different things. And Susan Sontag's definition of camp, which I adore, is camp is to treat serious things frivolously and frivolous things seriously. And if you you look at the humour in Serial Mum, it's like a template of that theory that... Kathleen Turner's accused of being a murderer. She's more concerned with the fact that Scotty doesn't wear a seatbelt. You know, she's more upset by the fact that somebody's chewing gum than the fact that they might have committed a felony. That's her skewed perspective. It's treating serious things frivolously and frivolous things seriously. It's Chip saying to her, you don't need a lawyer, you need an agent. It's it's like a warped perspective on everything. And that, to me, runs right through the movie. I think gay men, who maybe don't ever sit and intellectualise what camp is, understand that frivolous things seriously and serious things frivolously. I think it just speaks to them. That, uh, that definition of camp is almost like the model that you can discuss all camp classic films with. I totally agree. And I think, you know... We'll, we'll talk about um, the movie with the wire hangers that shall not be named. I think we'll probably come back to that quote a lot when we go through that movie because that's why people find it so hilarious. It's because we're fixating on the minutiae instead of the bigger picture yeah. because there's so much going on. And I think you can definitely find that in a lot of John Waters movies. The other thing that I wanted to address was it comes back to this broader point about John Waters and what mainstream accessibility is. I realised that after um, Serial Mom, John Waters had only made a couple more movies. So he made Pekka, which is a good movie, which is a great movie. Um, He made Cecil B. Demented, which I haven't seen. And then finally he made um, A Dirty Shame, which starred Johnny Knoxville and Tracy Ullman. And that's actually a great movie as well. I mean, much lower budget than Serial Mum. But again, quite big stars and sort of 
an R-rated mainstream movie. I love how he only works with people that he respects in some capacity. You'd never see him working with someone like the Kardashians, but he's been on record and said that he really wants to work with um, Justin Bieber and he really wants to work with Meryl Streep. Yeah. And I cannot imagine anything more tantalising than having Meryl Streep. Mm. I don't even know, care what film, but in a John Waters film. The things he would make that woman do. And I, I think the interesting thing is the things that she would be willing to do. Yes. Because I think what is joyous about John Waters is his he's got such a well-defined understanding of his world and his perspective on our world. And there are lots of points where the two overlap. And, you know, again, he talks on the commentary for Serial Mum about he sort of damns with faint praise in the commentary. You know, he talks about Ricky Lake being really quite good and, uh, you know, other members of the cast being surprisingly good in scenes. And you sort of imagine because of the way he cultivates a company or a troupe of performers that he'd be a lot more exuberant in his praise for their work. And he isn't. He's very sincere, but he doesn't over-egg it. And one of the things he talks about when he is praising Kathleen Turner is he deliberately writes bad dialogue. But the thing is, in order for bad dialogue to be funny, it has to be delivered with absolute sincerity. Otherwise, if you have a bad performer delivering bad dialogue, you've just got a bad movie. And they're not funny anyone can go out and be terrible. It doesn't make it funny. There needs to be this weird balance of talent and ineptitude for it to land. And what you've got in Serial Mom, particularly in Kathleen Turner, is a really amazing actress who understands why it's funny and knows how to play it completely straight. She doesn't wink at the camera. She doesn't sort of roll her eyes as if to say, I'm really above all this material, but it was an easy paycheck. She completely commits to selling the words on the page, even though the words on the page are Terrible. patently ridiculous. But they were written as such. And that's what I love. And I think that's where someone like Mink Stoll is amazing in that movie, because she's always worked with John Waters' dialogue. And she understands the beat and the rhythm of why they're funny. So her stuff about, with that throwaway line about I'm a divorced woman, on paper that's not a funny line. But in the context and the way she sells it, as that's a sign of her desperation, that's how it becomes funny. So I think these people who maybe weren't classically trained actors and even had day jobs around whenever John Waters came to call going, oh, we're making another movie, they got why the stuff was funny and were able to make it work. If this was remade, where do you see it? Do you see it remaining as a comedy or do you think who takes over the helm would try and go serious with it? I can honestly say I can't imagine anyone remaking John Waters' movies. The closest we've seen is is the Hairspray musical. And virtually every word of that musical is still from the pen of John Waters. He didn't write the book. He didn't write the, the songs. But every word of the book and every word of the lyrics came from his dialogue. You, when you go back and watch the original Hairspray movie after you've seen the musical, you realise just how much... Mark Shaman and his partner took from the dialogue of the movie and worked that into song lyrics. So it's him through and through. And I just, I can't see anyone even wanting to remake his movie. I don't think there'd be a big enough demand for them. Serial Mom is the only one that I can see being remade. 
because there's no way that someone could take female trouble or pink flamingos and well oh now you've brought me back to the point i was going to make when i said i looked at what else he'd done because yeah. he's had a fallow period of like 10 years and i guess those 10 years are when he was producing because he does get a producer credit on the Broadway musical and the movie of the Broadway musical, which I'd like to think made him a pretty penny. I, I really hope so. so. And he's been doing a tour, and if you get the chance to watch it, it's on DVD. It's called This Filthy World. It, he's done this speaking tour, and it's it's kind of a bit like when Kenneth Williams used to do those sort of monologue concerts in the audience with Kenneth Williams. It's a bit like that. It's just listening to him talk for an hour and a half, and it's so funny it's just hilarious but the one thing that he's got as an imdb credit that i didn't know about and i'm sure you don't either um it's called kiddie flamingos have you heard of it no so this is a in the u.s it's g-rated so here in the uk it would be you it's a g-rated rewrite of the screenplay of, of pink flamingos so everything that is in pink flamingos is in there apart from bad language or references to anything sexual or and what he did, it was it was an experiment. This thing is now a permanent installation in the Baltimore Museum of Modern Art, uh, and it's about seventy five minutes long. It's a film, and it's a recorded table read of the screenplay of Pink Flamingos, recorded with seven and eight year old kids playing all the roles, which sounds like the most obscene form of child abuse you could ever imagine and it isn't because they've taken all of the adult material out but kept in the world's filthiest person and the obsession with eggs and there's a kid who wears a skull cap with divine eyebrows drawn on it and someone else is edith massey in a, a nightgown who's obsessed with eggs but these uh, kids is this on youtube it is well you can watch part of it on youtube um it looks extraordinary and i love that because that's john waters basically saying you can take the adult material out, but the subversiveness can be appreciated by and enjoyed by every generation. And the fact is, when these kids do this table read, the kids in the audience find it utterly hilarious. They get why it's funny. You've actually just reminded me of RuPaul's Drag Race Season 7, the John Waters episode. Yeah, eggs, 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 eggs. eggs. And all you, yeah, but um, why do you think they left Serial Mom out? I get that maybe it's drag so they were going for Divine so all of the films that they had done were ones that Divine had starred in. It was, was it Female Trouble and Pink Flamingos? Well I think two scenes were from Pink Flamingos because there was the egg scene eggs, eggs, eggs. All I want is eggs. and the doggy poop scene Yes, and then the other I think the other one was from Female Trouble yeah. They didn't do the latter day mainstream yeah. stuff. Which is disappointing I would have liked to have seen something like across his body of work rather mm. than focusing on the 70s. But I, I think because they were doing a tribute to John Waters, the icon, his iconic stuff is the early stuff. Yeah. And I think that's probably the stuff that would have the most traction with an audience who maybe didn't really know who John Waters was. But if someone said, oh, it's the movie where the 300-pound drag queen eats a dog poo, they'd be <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that one. I think I've seen that. So you mentioned what... Um what he said in the commentary about Ricky Lake, but she is, like, in my eyes, the weakest link in this film. That any other actress could have been cast in that role and done an infinitely better job. Although, again, I think Ricky... So by that point, that was Ricky Lake's third movie with John Waters, and she adored him so much that she would have turned up for anything. And I think it was... If you watch her performance, 
she is automatically tuned into that 120% real life. There's something slightly off about her performance. And I think it's just because she she doesn't have a lot to do in the movie. She doesn't have any really funny lines. She doesn't have much of a character. She's just there to establish Beverly Sutphin as a mother of two. Um, and yet she manages to score laughs with the um, someone should kill him when she finds out that her boyfriend's cheating on her with Tracy Lords. Yeah. When she starts flirting with the photographer, she takes a role that's not really anything and still manages to get a laugh out of it because she knows what John Waters is looking for. But I think it's a massively underwritten role. It, it, it serves no purpose other than to establish that family dynamic. Um, I, I actually think Matthew Lillard's the weaker link because he has a lot more commentary to offer on the movie. He's he's adding the the links to the sort of gore movies of the 60s and the there's a subtext there about the effect of violent movies on people who are inclined to violence. And he has to land a lot of that stuff. And as you said earlier, he just always seems like the same person. He's always playing the same role. And I think he comes up because he's trying a lot harder. She's not trying hard because she knows what John Waters is looking for. That's That's my... Gentle you disagreement. Al- almost have me convinced. Yeah, there we go. Um, I, the only other thing that I really want to say, and it's a, it's a really, really, really superficial thing, but it was that really meta line towards the end when Chip's girlfriend says, you're bigger than Freddie and Jason. Freddie and Jason, but you? you're a real person. Yeah. And that kind of does sum up everything I loved about it. And and that, you know, I mean, that's very much of its time as well. If we're going back to the mid-90s, I mean, Freddie and Jason's respective franchises had both ended by, well, pretty much ended by then. It was just before New Nightmare, wasn't it? Yeah, but Freddie had been sent to hell and yeah. Jason had had his final Friday. And I think the commentary there, or what I always took from it, was also what a lot of even the people who made those movies were uncomfortable with was that these mass-murdering villains had at some point in the late 80s turned into the heroes of their own franchise. Yeah. By 1986, when they made the sixth Friday the 13th movie, it was Jason Lives, the posters all featured Jason back from the dead, and you were Is supposed Jason to... Jason Lives the one where people eat his heart? And... No, that's Jason Goes to Hell, that's the ninth one. I know a lot more about Nightmare on Elm Street than I do Friday the 13th. I used to, but I've learned a lot more about Friday the 13th over the last really? 10 years. Yeah. Anywho, um, I think we've pretty much covered everything. We've talked about Kitty Flamingos and all of that stuff. I actually really want to go look for that. I will. In fact, that's what I'm going to do when I'm in So, yeah, Serial Mum, I think anyone who hasn't seen it definitely needs to seek it out. Is it so bad it's gay or so gay that it's good? It's so gay, it's amazing. I think it's a great film. And as we said, it's... There's no gay content in it. Just references, but... uh, subtle references that Yeah. Yeah, a sensibility that I think you would just... You would watch the film and you would understand that only a gay filmmaker would really know how to work those references in. I I think it's a great movie. It's still a favourite of mine 20 years later. 20 years, my God. <laughs> Where's our lines going? I know, down the toilet. Right, where can people find you online? Gadimelo on Twitter. G-D-I-M-E-L-O-W. And I'm at So Bad It's Gay. Cheerio. 
Fuck me gently with the chainsaw. When a movie is so bad, it's good. Thanks, honey bought it at Versace. With quotes that launched a thousand memes. Keep your legs together. This isn't Jamaica. Maybe it's so bad, it's gay. And when a tired little Latin boy puts on a dress, it's simply a boy in a dress. Mama. In the morning when the sun comes out, I get hungry like I've never eaten. Every day I hear her scream and shout, always yelling for her daily feeding. All night long I only dream for. Then at 10.30 I hear her scream for. X, 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 all I want is X. Do you want them over easy? No way! I want them sunny side up since the sun is shining. Has the Eggman come to us today? I'm sure he'd stop by if you stop your whining. Oh, I love him so for bringing what I dreamed for. Can leave another dozen right at the screen door. X, 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 all I want is X. X, X, X. Eggs, 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 eggs